Section 28 of Pilgrimage to Al Medina and Mecca. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 21 The People of Al Medina. Al Medina contains but few families descended from the Prophet's auxiliaries. I heard only of four whose genealogy is undoubted. These were the Bayt al-Ansari, or descendants of Abu Ayyub, a most noble race, whose tree ramifies through a space of fifteen hundred years. They keep the keys of the Kuba mosque, and are imams in the harem, but the family is no longer wealthy or powerful. Footnote. Ibn Jubayr relates that in his day a descendant of Belal, the original muezzin of the Prophet, practiced his ancestral profession at al-Medina. End of footnote. The Bayt Abu Jud, they supply the harem with imams and muezzins. I was told that there are now but two surviving members of this family, a boy and a girl. The Bayt al-Sha'ab, a numerous race. Some of the members travel professionally, others trade, and others are employed in the harem. The Bayt al-Karani, who are mostly engaged in commerce. There is also a race, called al-Nakhawila, who according to some are descendants of the Ansar, while others derive it from the Yazid, the son of Muawiyah. The latter opinion is improbable, as the caliph in question was a mortal foe to Ali's family, which is inordinately venerated by these people. Footnote. This word is said to be the plural of Nakhwali, one who cultivates the date tree, a gardener or farmer. No one could tell me whether these heretics had not a peculiar name for themselves. I hazard a conjecture that they may be identical with the Mutawali, also written Mutawila, Muta'alis, Metu'alis, etc., etc., the hardy, courageous, and hospitable mountaineers of Syria, and Colossyria proper. This race of sectarians, about thirty-five thousand in number, holds to the imamship or supreme pontificate of Ali and his descendants. They differ, however, in doctrine from the Persians, believing in a transmigration of the soul, which, gradually purified, is at last orbed into a perfect star. They are scrupulous of caste, and will not allow a Jew or a Frank to touch a piece of their furniture, yet they erect guest-houses for infidels. In this they resemble the Shias, who are far more particular about ceremonial purity than the Sunnis. They use ablutions before each meal, and herein remind us of the Hindus. End of footnote. As far as I could ascertain, they abuse the Shaykhan, Abu Bakr and Omar, all my informants agreed upon this point, but none could tell me why they neglected to bedevil Osman, the third object of hatred to the Shia persuasion. They are numerous and warlike, yet they are despised by the townspeople because they openly profess heresy, and are, moreover, of humble degree. They have their own priests and instructors, although subject to the orthodox Kazi, marry in their own sect, are confined to low offices such as slaughtering animals, sweeping and gardening, and are not allowed to enter the harem during life or to be carried to it after death. Their corpses are taken down an outer street called the Darb al-Janaza, road of beers, to their own cemetery near al-Bakiya. They dress and speak Arabic like the townspeople, but the Arabs pretend to distinguish them by a peculiar look denoting their degradation. It is doubtless the mistake of effect for cause about all such tribes of the wandering foot and weary beast. A number of reports are current about the horrid customs of these people, and their community of women with the Persian pilgrims who pass through the town. Footnote. The communist principles of Mazdak the Persian, 6th century, 
have given his nation a permanent bad fame in this particular among the Arabs. End of footnote. It needs scarcely be said that such tales coming from the mouths of fanatic foes are not to be credited. I regret not having an opportunity to become intimate with any of the Nahawila, from whom curious information might be elicited. Orthodox Muslims do not like to be questioned about such hateful subjects. When I attempted to learn something from one of my acquaintance, Sheikh Ula al-Din of a Kurd family settled at al-Madina, a man who had travelled over the East and who spoke five languages to perfection, he coldly replied that he had never consorted with these heretics. Saeeds and Sharifs, the descendants of the Prophet, here abound. Footnote. In Arabia, the Sharif is the descendant of Hassan through his two sons, Zayid and Hassan al-Musana. The Sayyid is the descendant of the Hussein through Zayin al-Abidin, the soul of twelve children who survived the fatal field of Karbala. The former devotes himself to government and war, the latter to learning and religion. In Persia and India the Sharif is the son of a Sayyid woman and a common Muslim. The Sayyid Najib al-Taraf, noble on one side, is the son of a Sayyid father and a common Muslimah. The Sayyid Najib al-Tarafain, noble on both sides, is one whose parents are both Sayyids. End of footnote. The Benu Hussein of al-Madina have their headquarters at Suwarikiyah. The former place contains six or seven families, the latter ninety-three or ninety-four. Footnote. Burkhart alludes to this settlement when he says, In the eastern desert, at three or four days' journey from Medina, lives a whole Bedouin tribe called Beni Ali, who are all of this Persian creed. I travelled to Suwarkia, and found it inhabited by Benu Hossein. The Benu Ali are Bedouin settled at the Awali, near the Kuba Mosque. They were originally slaves of the great house of Auf, and are still heretical in their opinions. End of footnote. Anciently they were much more numerous, and such was their power that for centuries they retained charge of the Prophet's tomb. They subsist principally upon their amlak, property and land, for which they have title deeds extending back to Muhammad's days, and awkaf, religious bequests. Popular rumor accuses them of frequent murders for the sake of succession. At al-Madina they live chiefly at the Hosh ibn Sa'ad, a settlement outside the town and south of the Darb al-Janaza. There is, however, no objection to their dwelling within the walls, and they are taken to the harem after death, if there be no evil report against the individual. Their burial place is the Bakiya cemetery. The reason of this toleration is that some are supposed to be Sunni or Orthodox, and even the most heretical keep their rafas, heresy, a profound secret. Footnote refusing, rejecting, hence the origin of Rafizi, a rejecter, a heretic. In a Rafiznahum, verily, we have rejected them. Abu Bakr, Omar, and Osman exclaim the Persians, glorying in the opprobrious epithet. End of footnote. Most learned Arabs believe that they belong, like the Persians, to the sect of Ali. The truth, however, is so vaguely known that I could find out none of the peculiarities of their faith till I met a Shirazi friend at Bombay. The Benu Hussein are spare, dark men of Badawi appearance, and they dress in the old Arab style still affected by the Sharifs, a kufiya, kerchief on the head, a banish, a long and wide-sleeved garment resembling our magician's gown, thrown over their white cotton kamis, shirt. In public they always carry swords, even when others leave weapons at home. Footnote. Sayyids in al-Hijaz, as a general rule, do not denote their descent by the green turban. 
In fact, most of them wear a red cashmere shawl around the head, when able to afford the luxury. The green turban is an innovation in al-Islam. In some countries it is confined to the Sayyids, in others it is worn as a mark of distinction by pilgrims. Kuda Bakhshe, the Indian at Cairo, generally dressed in a tender green suit like a mantis. End of footnote. There are about two hundred families of Sayyid Alawiya, descendants of Ali, by any of his wives but Fatima. They bear no distinctive mark in dress or appearance, and are either employed at the temple or engage at trade. Of the Khalifia, or descendants of Abbas, there is, I am told, but one household, the Bayt al-Khalifa, who act as imams in the harim, and have charge of the Hamza's tomb. Some declare that there are a few of the Siddiqiyya, or descendants from Abu Bakir. Others ignore them, and none could give me any information of the Benu Najjar. The rest of the population of al-Madinah is a motley race composed of offshoots from every nation in al-Islam. The sanctity of the city attracts strangers who, purposing to stay but a short time, become residents. After finding some employment they marry, have families, die, and are buried there with an eye to the spiritual advantages of the place. I was much importuned to stay at al-Madinah. The only known physician was one Shaykh Abdullah Sahib, an Indian, a learned man, but of so melancholic a temperament and so ascetic in his habits, that his knowledge was entirely lost to the public. Why dost thou not, said my friends, hire a shop somewhere near the Prophet's mosque? There thou wilt eat bread by thy skill, and thy soul will have the blessing of being on holy ground. Sheikh Noor also opined, after a short residence at al-Madinah, that it was a Bara Janati Shahar, a very heavenly city, and little would have induced him to make it his home. The present ruling race at al-Madinah, in consequence of political vicissitudes, is the Sufat, sons of Turkish fathers by Arab mothers. Footnote. Plural of Sufta, a half-caste Turk. End of footnote. These half-castes are now numerous, and have managed to secure the highest and most lucrative offices. Besides Turks, there are families originally from the Maghrib, Takruris, Egyptians in considerable numbers, settlers from Al-Yaman and other parts of Arabia, Syrians, Kurds, Afghans, Dagestanis from the Caucasus, and a few Jawis, Java Muslims. The Sindhis, I was told, reckon about one hundred families, who were exceedingly despised for their cowardice and want of manliness, whilst the Baluch and the Afghan are respected. The Indians are not so numerous in proportion here as at Mecca. Still, Hindustani is by no means uncommonly heard in the streets. They preserve their peculiar costume, the women persisting in showing their faces, and in wearing tight, exceedingly tight pantaloons. This, together with other reasons, secures for them the contempt of the Arabs. At Al-Madinah they are generally small shopkeepers, especially druggists and sellers of kumash, cloth, and they form a society of their own. The terrible cases of misery and starvation, which so commonly occur among the improvident Indians at Jeddah and Mecca, are here rare. The Hanafi school holds the first rank at Al-Madinah, as in most parts of Al-Islam, although many of the citizens, and almost all the Badawin, are Shafais. The reader will have remarked with astonishment that at one of the fountainheads of the faith there are several races of schismatics, the Benu Hossein, the Benu Ali, and the Nahawila. At the town of Safra there are said to be a number of the Zuyud schismatics, who visit Al-Madinah and have settled in force at Mecca, and some declare that the Bayazi sect also exists. Footnote. Plural of Zaidi. 
These are well-known schismatics of the Shia persuasion who abound in southern Arabia. End of footnote. Footnote. The Bayazi sect flourishes near Muscat, whose imam or prince, it is said, belongs to the heretical persuasion. It rejects Osman and advocates the superiority of Omar over the other two caliphs. End of footnote. The citizens of al-Medina are a favored race, although the city is not, like Mecca, the grand mart of the Muslim world or the meeting-place of nations. They pay no taxes and reject the idea of a miri or land-cess with extreme disdain. Are we, the children of the Prophet, they exclaim, to support or to be supported? The Wahhabis, not understanding the argument, taxed them, as was their wont, in specie and in materials, for which reason the very name of those Puritans is an abomination. As has before been shown, all the numerous attendants at the mosque are paid partly by the sultan, partly by the okaf, the rents of houses and lands bequeathed to the shrine, and scattered over every part of the Muslim world. When a Madani is inclined to travel, he applies to the mudir al-Harim and receives from him a paper which entitles him to the receipt of a considerable sum at Constantinople. The ikram, honorarium as it is called, varies with the rank of the recipient, the citizens being divided into these four orders, videselit first and highest, the Sadat, Sayyids, and Imams, who are entitled to twelve purses, or about sixty pounds. Footnote. Sadat is the plural of Sayyid. This word, in the northern Hijaz, is applied indifferently to the posterity of Hassan and Hossein. End of footnote. Of these there are said to be three hundred families. The Kanadan, who keep open house and receive poor strangers gratis, their ikram amounts to eight purses, and they number from a hundred to a hundred and fifty families. The ahali, burghers, or madani, properly speaking, who have homes and families and were born in al-Medina, they claim six purses. Footnote. The plural of al, an inhabitant of a particular place. The reader will excuse my troubling him with these terms, as they are almost all local in their application, and therefore are not explained in such restricted sense by lexicographers, the specification may not be useless to the Oriental student. End of footnote. The Mujawirin, strangers as Egyptians or Indians, settled at, though not born in Al-Medina. Their honorarium is four purses. The Madani traveller, on arrival at Constantinople, reports his arrival to his consul, the Wakil al-Haramayan. This agent of the two holy places applies to the Nazir al-Aukaf, or intendant of bequests. The latter, after transmitting the demand to the different officers of the treasury, sends the money to the Wakil, who delivers it to the applicant. This gift is sometimes squandered in pleasure, more often profitably invested either in merchandise or in articles of home use, presents of dress and jewellery for the women, handsome arms, especially pistols and balas, yetagans, silk tassels, amber pipe pieces, slippers, and embroidered purses. Footnote. The Turkish yatagan. It is a long dagger intended for thrusting rather than cutting, and has a curve which, methinks, has been wisely copied by the Duke of Orléans in the bayonet of the Chasseur de Vincennes. End of footnote. They are packed up in one or two large Saharas, and then commences the labor of returning home gratis. Besides the Ikram, most of the Madani, when upon these begging trips, are received as guests by great men at Constantinople. The citizens whose turn it is not to travel await the aukaf and sadakat, bequests and alms, forwarded every year by the Damascus caravan. Besides which, as has been before explained, the harem supplies even those not officially employed in it with many perquisites. 
Without these advantages, Almadina would soon be abandoned to cultivators and Badawin. Though commerce is here honorable, as everywhere in the East, business is slack, because the higher classes prefer the idleness of administering their landed estates, and being servants to the mosque. Footnote. Omar Effendi's brothers, grandsons of the principal mufti of Al-Madina, were both shopkeepers, and were always exhorting him to do some useful work, rather than muddle his brains and waste his time on books. End of footnote. I heard of only four respectable houses, Al-Isawi, Al-Sha'ab, Abd al-Jawad, and a family from Al-Shark, the eastern region. They all deal in grain, cloth, and provisions, and perhaps the richest have a capital of twenty thousand dollars. Caravans in the cold weather are constantly passing between Al-Madina and Egypt, but they are rather bodies of visitors to Constantinople than traders travelling for gain. Corn is brought from Jeddah by land, and imported into Yambu or via Al-Rais, a port on the Red Sea, one day and a half's journey from Safra. There is an active provision trade with the neighbouring Badawin, and the Syrian Hajj supplies the citizens with apparel and articles of luxury, tobacco, dried fruits, sweetmeats, knives, and all that is included under the word notions. There are few storekeepers, and their dealings are petty, because articles of every kind are brought from Egypt, Syria, and Constantinople. As a general rule, labor is exceedingly expensive, and at the visitation time a man will demand fifteen or twenty piastres from a stranger for such a trifling job as mending an umbrella. Footnote. To a townsman, even during the dead season, the pay of a gardener would be two piastres, a carpenter eight piastres per diem, and a common servant, a bawab or porter, for instance, twenty-five piastres per mensum, or three pounds per annum, besides board and dress. Considering the value of money in the country, these are very high rates. End of footnote. Handy craftsmen and artisans, carpenters, masons, locksmiths, potters, and others, are either slaves or foreigners, mostly Egyptians. Footnote. Who alone sell milk, curds, or butter? The reason of their monopoly has been given in Chapter 8. End of footnote. This proceeds partly from the pride of the people. They are taught from their childhood that the Madani is a favored being, to be respected, however vile or schismatic, and that the vengeance of Allah will fall upon any one who ventures to abuse, much more to strike him. Footnote. History informs us that the sanctity of their birthplace has not always preserved the people of Al-Madina, but the memory of their misfortunes is soon washed away by the overwhelming pride of the race. End of footnote. They receive a stranger at the shop window with the haughtiness of pashas, and take pains to show him by words as well as by looks, that they consider themselves as good gentlemen as the king, only not so rich. Added to this pride are indolence and the true Arab prejudice, which, even in the present day, prevents a Badawi from marrying the daughter of an artisan. Like Castilians, they consider labor humiliating to any but a slave. Nor is this, as a clever French author remarks, by any means an unreasonable idea, since heaven, to punish man for disobedience, caused him to eat daily bread by the sweat of his brow. Besides, there is degradation, moral and physical, in handiwork, compared with the freedom of the desert. The loom and the file do not conserve courtesy and chivalry like the sword and the spear. Man extends his tongue, to use an Arab phrase, when a cuff and not a stab is to be the consequence of an injurious expression. Even the ruffian becomes polite in California, where his brother ruffian carries his revolver, and those European nations who were the most polished, when every gentleman wore a rapier, have become the rudest since civilization disarmed them. By the tariff quoted below it will be evident that Al-Madina is not a cheap place. 
Footnote. The market is under the charge of an Arab mutasib or bazaar master, who again is subject to the muhafiz or pasha governing the place. The following was the current price of provisions at al Medina early in August 1853. During the visitation season everything is doubled. One pound mutton, two piastres. Beef is half price, but seldom eaten. There is no buffalo meat, and only Badawin will touch the camel. A fowl, five piastres. Eggs, in summer eight, in winter four for the piaster. One pound clarified butter, four piasters. When cheap it falls to two and a half. Butter is made at home by those who eat it, and sometimes by the Egyptians for sale. One pound milk, one piaster. One pound cheese, two piasters. When cheap it is one, when dear, three piasters per pound. A wheaten loaf weighing twelve dirhams, ten paras. There are loaves of twenty-four dirhams costing half a piaster. One pound dry biscuits imported, three piasters. One pound of vegetables, half a piaster. One mud dates varies according to quality from four piasters to one hundred. One pound grapes, one and a half piasters. A lime, one para. A pomegranate, from twenty paras to one piaster. A watermelon, from three to six piasters each. One pound peaches, two piasters. One pound coffee, four piasters. The Yamani is the only kind drunk here. One pound tea, fifteen piasters. Black tea, imported from India. One pound European loaf sugar, six piasters. White Egyptian, five piasters. Brown Egyptian, three piasters. Brown Indian, for cooking in conserves, three piasters. One pound spermaceti candles, seven piasters. Called wax, and imported from Egypt. One pound tallow candles, three piasters. One ardeb wheat, 295 piasters. One ardeb onions, 33 piasters. When cheap, 20. When dear, 40. One ardeb barley, 120 piasters. Minimum 90, maximum 180. One ardeb rice, Indian, 302 piasters. It varies from 260 to 350 piasters according to quality. Dora, or maize, is generally given to animals and is very cheap. Barsim, clover, a bundle of, three wakiyas, thirty-six dirhams, costs one para. Adas, or lentil, is the same price as rice. One pound latakia tobacco, sixteen piasters, one pound Syrian tobacco, eight piasters, one pound tumbak, Persian, six piasters, one pound olive oil, six piasters, when cheap it is four, a skin of water, half a piaster. Bag of charcoal containing one hundred wuka, ten piasters. The best kind is made from an acacia called samor. The para, Turkish, fada, Egyptian, or diwani, Hijazi word, is the fortieth part of a piaster, or nearly the quarter of a farthing. The piaster is about two and two-fifths pence. Throughout al-Hijaz there is no want of small change, as in Egypt, where the deficiency calls for the attention of the government. End of footnote. Yet the citizens, despite their being generally in debt, manage to live well. Their cookery, like that of Mecca, has borrowed something from Egypt, Turkey, Syria, Persia, and India. As all Orientals, they are exceedingly fond of clarified butter. Footnote. Physiologists have remarked that fat and greasy food containing a quantity of carbon is peculiar to cold countries, whereas the inhabitants of the tropics delight in fruit, vegetables, and articles of diet which do not increase caloric. This must be taken cum grano. In Italy, Spain, and Greece, the general use of olive oil begins. In Africa and Asia, especially in the hottest parts, the people habitually eat enough clarified butter to satisfy an Eskimo. 
and a footnote. I have seen the boy Mohammed drink off nearly a tumblerful, although his friends warned him that it would make him as fat as an elephant. When a man cannot enjoy clarified butter in these countries, it is considered a sign that his stomach is out of order, and all my excuses of a melancholic temperament were required to be in full play to prevent the infliction of fried meat swimming in grease, or that guest-dish, rice saturated with melted, perhaps I should say, rancid, butter. Footnote. In Persia you jocosely say to a man, when he is threatened with a sudden inroad of guests, go and swamp the rice with rogan, clarified butter. End of footnote. The salmon of al-Hijaz, however, is often fresh, being brought in by the Badawin. It has not, therefore, the foul flavor derived from the old and impregnated skin-bag, which distinguishes the ghee of India. Footnote. Among the Indians, ghee, placed in pots carefully stopped up and kept for years till a hard black mass only remains, is considered a panacea for diseases and wounds. End of footnote. The house of a Madani in good circumstances is comfortable for the building is substantial and the attendants respectable. Black slave-girls here perform the complicated duties of servant-maids in England. They are taught to sew, to cook, and to wash, besides sweeping the house and drawing water for domestic use. Hazina, the charmer, a decided misnomer, costs from forty to fifty dollars. If she be a mother, her value is less. But neat-handedness, propriety of demeanor, and skill in feminine accomplishments raise her to a hundred dollars, or twenty-five pounds. A little black boy, perfect in all his points, and tolerably intelligent, costs about a thousand piastres. Girls are dearer, and eunuchs fetch double that sum. The older the children become, the more their value diminishes, and no one would purchase, save under exceptional circumstances, an adult slave, because he is never parted with but for some incurable vice. The Abyssinian, mostly gala girls, so much pride because their skins are always cool in the hottest weather, are here rare. They sell themselves for less than twenty pounds, and they often fetch sixty pounds. I never heard of a Jaria Baiza, a white slave girl, being in the market at Al-Medina. In Circassia they fetch from one hundred to four hundred pounds prime cost, and few men in Al-Hijaz could afford so expensive a luxury. The bazaar at Al-Medina is poor, and as almost all the slaves are brought from Mecca by the Jalabs, or drivers, after exporting the best to Egypt, the town receives only the refuse. Footnote. Some of these slaves come from Abyssinia, the greater part, are driven from the Gala country and exported at the harbours of the Somali coast, Berbera, Tajura, and Zila. As many as two thousand slaves from the former place and four thousand from the latter are annually shipped off to Mocha, Jeddah, Suez, and Muscat. It is strange that the imam of the latter place should voluntarily have made a treaty with us for the suppression of this vile trade, and yet should allow so extensive an importation to his dominions. End of footnote. The personal appearance of the Madani makes the stranger wonder how this mongrel population of settlers has acquired a peculiar and almost an Arab physiognomy. They are remarkably fair, the effect of a cold climate. Sometimes the cheeks are lighted up with red and the hair is a dark chestnut. At Al-Medina I was not stared at as a white man. The cheeks and different parts of the children's bodies are sometimes marked with mashali or tashri, not the three long stripes of the Meccans, but little scars, generally in threes. Footnote. More will be said concerning the origin of this strange custom when speaking of Mecca and the Meccans. And of footnote. In some points they approach very near the true Arab type, that is to say, the Badawi of ancient and noble fame. The cheekbones are high and saillant, the eyes small, more round than long, piercing, 
fiery, deep-set, and brown rather than black. The head is small, the ears well cut, the face long and oval, though not unfrequently disfigured by what is popularly called the lantern jaw. The forehead high, bony, broad, and slightly retreating, and the beard and mustachios scanty, consisting of two tufts upon the chin, with, generally speaking, little or no whisker. These are the points of resemblance between the city and the country Arab. The difference is equally remarkable. The temperament of the Madani is not purely nervous like that of the Badawi, but admits a large admixture of the bilious, and though rarely, the lymphatic. The cheeks are fuller, the jaws project more than in the pure race, the lips are more fleshy, more sensual and ill-fitting, the features are broader, and the limbs are stouter and more bony. The beard is a little thicker, and the young Arabs of the towns are beginning to imitate the Turks in that abomination to their ancestors, shaving. Personal vanity, always a ruling passion among Orientals, and a hopeless wish to emulate the flowing beards of the Turks and the Persians, perhaps the only nations in the world who ought not to shave the chin, have overruled even the religious objections to such innovation. I was more frequently appealed to at Al-Medina than anywhere else for some means of removing the opprobrium kusa or scant-bearded man. They blacken the beard with gallnuts, henna, and other preparations, especially the Egyptian mixture, composed of sulphate of iron one part, ammonia of iron one part, and gallnuts two parts, infused in eight parts of distilled water. It is a very bad dye. Much refinement of dress is now found at Al-Medina, Constantinople, the Paris of the East, supplying it with the newest fashions. Respectable men wear either a baniche or a juba, the latter, as at Mecca, is generally of some light and flashy color, gamboge, yellow, tender green, or bright pink. This is the sign of a dressy man. If you have a single coat, it should be of some modest color, as a dark violet. To appear always in the same tender green or bright pink would excite derision. But the hijazis, poor and rich, always prefer these tulip tints. The proper badan, or long coat without sleeves, still worn in truly Arab countries, is here confined to the lowest classes. That ugliest of headdresses, the red Tunisian cap, called tarbouche, is much used. Only the Arabs have too much disregard for their eyes and faces to wear it, as the Turks do, without a turban. Footnote. The word tarbouche is a corruption from the Persian sarpouche, head-covering, headdress. The Anglo-Saxon further debases it to tarbouche. The other name for the tarbush, fez, denotes the place where the best were made. Some Egyptians distinguish between the two, calling the large high crimson cap fez, the small one tarbush. End of footnote. It is with regret that one sees the most graceful headgear imaginable, the kufiya and the akal, prescribed except among the sharifs and the Bedouin. The women dress, like the men, handsomely. Indoors they wear, I am told, a sudayuriya, or bodice of calico and other stuffs like the koli of India, which supports the bosom without the evils of European stays. Over this is a saub, or white shirt, of the white stuff called halaili, or burunjuk, with enormous sleeves and flowing down to the feet. The sarwal, or pantaloons, are not wide like the Egyptians, but rather tight, approaching to the Indian cut without its exaggeration. Footnote. In India, as in Sindh, a lady of fashion will sometimes be occupied a quarter of an hour in persuading her bloomers to pass over the region of the ankle. End of footnote. Abroad they throw over the head a silk or a cotton milaya, generally checkered white and blue. The burqa, face veil, all over hijaz is white, a decided improvement in point of cleanliness upon that of Egypt. 
Women of all ranks dye the soles of the feet and the palms of the hands black, and trace thin lines down the inside of the fingers, by first applying a plaster of henna and then a mixture called shadar, of gallnuts, alum, and lime. The hair, parted in the center, is plaited into about twenty little twists, called jadila. Footnote. In the plural, called jadail. It is a most becoming headdress when the hair is thick, and when, which I regret to say is rare in Arabia, the twists are undone for ablution once a day. End of footnote. Of ornaments, as usual among Orientals, they have a vast variety, ranging from brass and spangles to gold and precious stones, and they delight in strong perfumes, musk, civet, ambergris, attar of rose, oil of jasmine, aloe wood, and extract of cinnamon. Both sexes wear Constantinople slippers. The women draw on kuf, inner slippers of bright yellow leather, serving for socks, and covering the ankle, with papouche of the same material, sometimes lined with velvet and embroidered with a gold sprig under the hollow of the foot. In mourning the men show no difference of dress, like good Muslims, to whom such display of grief is forbidden. But the women, who cannot dissociate the heart and the toilette, evince their sorrow by wearing white clothes and by doffing their ornaments. This is a modern custom. The accurate Burckhardt informs us that in his day the women of Al-Medina did not wear mourning. The Madani generally appear abroad on foot. Few animals are kept here, on account, I suppose, of the expense of feeding them. The cavalry are mounted on poor Egyptian nags. The horses, generally ridden by rich men, are generally nijdi, costing from two hundred to three hundred dollars. Camels are numerous, but those bred in Al-Hijaz are small, weak, and consequently little prized. Dromedaries of good breed, called Arar, the noble, and Namani from the place of that name, are to be had for any sum between ten and four hundred dollars. Footnote. Plural of Hurrah, the free, the noble. End of footnote. They are diminutive, but exceedingly swift, sure-footed, sagacious, thoroughbred, with eyes like the antelopes, and muzzles that would almost enter a tumbler. Mules are not found at Al-Medina, although popular prejudice does not now forbid the people to mount them. Asses come from Egypt and Mecca. I am told that some good animals are to be found in the town, and that certain ignoble Badawi clans have a fine breed, but I never saw any. Of beasts intended for food, the sheep is the only common one in this part of Al-Hijaz. There are three distinct breeds. The larger animal comes from Nijd and the Aniza Badawin, who drive a flourishing trade. The smaller is a native of the country. Both are the common Arab species of a tawny color with a long fat tail. Occasionally one meets with what at Aden is called the Berbera sheep, a totally different beast, white with a black broad face, a dew-lap, and a short fat tail that looks as if it twisted up into a knot. It was doubtless introduced by the Persians. Cows are rare at Al-Medina. Beef throughout the East is considered an unwholesome food, and the Badawi will not drink cow's milk preferring that of the camel, the ewe, and the goat. The flesh of the latter animal is scarcely ever eaten in the city except by the poorest classes. End of section 28